I'm not a criminal. Not a criminal. I'm black, yes. I'm tatted, yes. Maybe have the image of a thug, yes. But you don't know me. Hakeem Carter was charged with a misdemeanor crime and spent around two years working his way through the court system. But that's not where this story begins. In order to understand how the system saw Hakeem as a criminal, we need to start a few years before that, on the night Hakeem was a victim. This is Unprisoned. I'm Eve Abrams. This is about 3 in the morning, 3.30, 4-ish in the morning. I worked a 12-hour shift. I'd catch me on karaoke on bourbon. It was my second day of training. I was a houseman, cleanup crew, while everybody out partying. So I just came through, made sure the folks clean, clean the bathrooms while everybody you know, having a good time. It was a real party environment. Like everybody, good mood, vibes, singing. They doing karaoke, so it was pretty cool. And then we can get involved in it, so it was it was fun. And I was walking home because I didn't have no transportation at that time. Um, I had just found employment and I was excited because I actually get to start making my money tomorrow when I come to work. But tomorrow never came. I was 23. I almost didn't live to see my 24th birthday. I just wanted to get home. I had just texted my mom, was like, if you cook, make me a plate and leave it on the stove. She was like, okay. So I knew she was up. From that point, I noticed a white truck. I don't know who the truck is. I'm trying to get home. It's four in the morning. He drove past me. We was going in opposite directions. By the time I had off Decatur and to Franklin, the truck was coming up again. It was on the corner of a church. There's a church right down the corner. I guess they had the high beams on, so I couldn't really look and see what type of truck it was. Next thing I knew, I had a man running towards me with a shotgun. I couldn't think of nothing. I was in complete shock. And he ran towards me. He drew the gun. I don't know where the shotgun came from. I guess he drew it out of his pants. And he ran towards me. He grabbed me and was like, don't go nowhere. Like, you coming with us. I thought I was going to be kidnapped. It was three guys. thought they was going to throw me in the truck. But they took me on the side of the street with the church. And went in my pockets. Basically interrogated me. Like, it was weird. Like, where I was coming from, did I have kids, uh, what I'm doing out, uh, how old am I? It was just random questions that I figured was just to throw my attention off what was going on. The shotgun, it, it was pointed down at that time. It's, I'm not even looking because it's three guns. One had a shotgun, one had a revolver and a pistol. So, it really didn't matter where I looked. If I turned my head, anybody could have shot me. It was like, you don't have nothing. I said, I don't have nothing for y'all. I don't have nothing for y'all. After that, boom. Out of nowhere. Boom. I thought I was dead. I never been shot before. 
and he hit me in my stomach. I had an orange polo shirt on, my work shirt, black dickies, and some white Jordan fives my girlfriend had bought me for Valentine's Day. When I woke up and looked down, my orange shirt was completely red, like I bought it that color. My dickies was soaked with blood to where as the dicky patch on my pants was just red. My Jordans was just covered in blood. I'm saying to myself, like, man, he shot me. Like, he shot me. I was conscious for every shot after that, down to the one in my face. The second shot, he hit me in my hip. Because it felt like a brick hit my leg. I'm thinking he's done. I look up. I'm looking at him, but he's not looking at me. He can't look at what he's doing. So I look at him, and he's still aiming a gun. He shot again. My right arm completely dropped. I can't even use this arm to cover my face. By the time I turned my head the second time, he had then exploded my face, and blood just was pouring on my face. All I can do is roll over and pray. I was just was there, leaking. By the time I finished praying, a guy came out of nowhere. Like, I'm hearing him. Like, I'm blanking in and out because I'm losing blood. I'm dying at this point. It's like I'm a doctor. I live down the street. I heard it. So Emily and I were sleeping, and, you know, we just heard the gunshots very, very loud. And I remember the first thing it did was just like, we both dropped on the floor because we weren't sure what exactly was happening. And then when it stopped, Emily, you know, had her call 911. And then I went to our front window to just see what was, what was out there. My name is Jarrett Pytel. I'm an addiction medicine and primary care doctor. In 2014, I was a medical student at LSU Health Sciences Center in New Orleans. That intersection's pretty broad. It's, you know, three streets coming together. There was a street light, you know, it was relatively well lit, and he was just was laying on the, the corner, and nobody was out. I mean, he was completely alone. It was eerie how just dead the block was. There was nothing there. You just kind of see, you know, him in the middle of the street on his back moving, but not really like moving around, you know, just kind of, kind of rocking. So I put on some clothes and um, some gym shorts, t-shirt, my tennis shoes. And as I was coming towards him, I was, you know, just saying like, it's okay. I'm like here to help. You're okay. And uh, just to make sure I didn't startle him. And at that point, just kind of went into medical mode and and by this time I was a fourth year medical student and had seen lots of gunshot wounds relatively lots more than anybody should you know the face was the thing that kind of just sticks out to me because I think it was the you know just the most obvious wound you know I was asking him like hey what's your name and kind of having a hard time understanding him so I understood that there was probably some trauma you could just kind of see a, a bloody mess on his face. At that point, Emily had stuck her head out of the door, and I said, like, hey, bring a bunch of towels. Um, one of my other neighbors had come out at that point as well. 
and started to help. You know, I just remember rolling him over, trying to look at his back to see if there's any bullet wounds there. If somebody's going to die, it's because they're going to bleed out. And the only thing that you need to do until they get to a trauma center and a surgeon is stop the bleeding. So that was what I was trying to do is just like figure out where the most blood was coming from and push um, and hold pressure. Once the EMS came, they were very professional, you know, and they took over. But after that, I went back and washed all my clothes, you know, washed my hands. I think we ended up just throwing away all of our, our towels and then uh, just try to try to go to sleep, I think, for an hour or two, and then had to get up and go to work the next day. I remember I reached out to one of my professors at LSU, you know, and just curious to see if Hakeem had done well, and they had said he had. So I felt relieved to hear that he had survived. Days afterwards, it was really just kind of relief that he was okay, kind of processing this event, and then just kind of just feeling sad that these things happen to kids walking in the middle of the street. Sad that this is just kind of a commonplace occurrence in, in the city. A lot of people think I'm crazy. A lot of people look at me as psychotic. A lot of people look at me as trouble. But it's because they don't understand where I come from. You would never understand how they feel until it is done. Like, every time I look in the mirror, he shot me. I take a bath, he shot me. I go use the bathroom, he shot me. I have a scar everywhere on my body. People will come in a supermarket not knowing that I'm the department manager, and they'll go asking everybody else for something that because they didn't want to look at my face. I was missing nine teeth. I was called the hunchback of Notre Dame at this time. Snag a tooth, ball mouth. I had people introducing me as they partner they got shot up. That's not cute. Like, what type of stripes or credibility you expecting from this? People figure you only can get PTSD if you serve in the war or if you was in the military, and that's not true. You know, the same thing you experience in a war is what we experiencing now just in our community alone. My name is Karen Carter and I'm Akeem's mother. Akeem is my oldest son. He be 29 years old. Even from a kid, he never hung in the street. He played basketball, threw a game. He's back home. He's back in his room, back on the computer. I always was inside. People always knew where I was at. Went to work, came home, had limited friends. I played the games, stood inside. Making beats or rapping, but his real joy was just being here with his nephew. I really was a good kid. After his shooting, it took a long time for him to be around crowds and even go to the store. So that's what made him get a gun. But he got it illegally. He didn't buy nothing off the street. He went to the 
gun store made sure they did the background check so he had paperwork and everything he didn't have it for trouble he had it for protection and it's protection that he needs i got that gun as soon as i was able to walk on my feet again just that quick I had bought one, then I had bought two, then I had bought three, and I actually used to watch TV with a Glock 21 right here and a Glock 17 right here. And I used to tell my mom, you will probably want to tell anybody who come in here to call before they come here. The only person who understood it was my mom. My mom did not complain about those guns being right here. And it is just from one mistake, instead of him having it on a holster exposed, he had it in his pocket. And that's where the nightmare began. The incident or the arrest occurred on May 20th, 2017, at 2 in the morning. My name is Eliza Gottfried. I'm an attorney at the Orleans Public Defender's Office, and I represented Hakeem Carter in 2017. The officers got an alert, I think, over their radio that there had been a shooting somewhere in the area, and the only description given was a black male in a black t-shirt and black pants. And they see Hakeem walking with his friend, and he fits this description, this extremely vague description, but his friend was wearing all white, and the description wasn't two men walking, it wasn't even walking, it was one person running, and he's had nothing to do with this shooting. But basically they approach him, search him, and they find a gun. And he has a gun. And in New Orleans, while it's legal to carry a gun, if you're going to like conceal it under your shirt, you have to have a concealed carry permit, which he didn't have. And he had it like in his waistband, and his shirt was over it. So the fact that it was covered, and he didn't have a concealed carry permit, was the issue. First of all, he had no priors. He's never been in trouble. The whole reason he carries a gun, I mean, the reason why m most people want to own guns is for protection, and of all people to want to have protection, Hakeem wants it more than any way because he was a victim of such a violent crime. Whatever you find on the legal side of it, in reality, he was at the wrong place at the wrong time. He happens to be a black person, a black man in the wrong place at the wrong time. He wasn't doing anything wrong, and if he had been following the law and had his gun out in the open, I just feel like there's also the potential for a bad interaction with police or with others. Obviously, under the law, everybody talks about you're innocent until proven guilty, but it really doesn't work that way. It's just an uphill battle from the beginning in the courthouse, but also in the realm of public opinion. As soon as those articles come out with people's mugshots posted or as soon as someone is arrested and shackled and brought in an orange jumpsuit and their entire worth and their case and their and a monetary amount is set for them within, you know, a minute. And then you're kind of thrust into this system where, especially for someone like Hakeem, where he, I'm sure, was like, why is this even happening to me? Why didn't do anything wrong? And he really didn't. I mean, he was missing paperwork. He's not struggling with being shot up. He didn't learn to cope with that. He looked at himself as a survivor for that. But what plays the big part is the legal system, it's the law. It's what's went on the criminal. 
support, going to trial, that's the bigger thing. That's what triggers everything off. That's what triggers PTSD. That's what triggers the depression. That's what he's struggling with. He don't like being a statistic. Like, they look at him as being uh, another black man on the streets that just don't want nothing in life. Basically, the judge was asking me, like, why did I have the need to carry a firearm? And I was explaining to him a few years ago that I was shot multiple times. And he did find that a logical enough reason for me to have a firearm. He asked me once again, why do you feel you need to have a firearm? At this time, I feel like you're toying with me because I just explained to you in detail a real-life situation. And from there, he basically was like, well, I'm going to find you guilty because you carrying a firearm, another innocent black child going to end up dead on the streets from trying to take it from you. So you just feel like, oh, he got arrested for a gun. He's a criminal. Plus, the color that I am is like I'm the perfect target to make a criminal this going back and forth back and forth back and forth back and forth with the court system and everything that have taken a toll with my anxiety level when he used to have to go to court I literally got sick to the stomach where sometimes I had to even miss it because I was just afraid once he go in there, it was gonna lock him up again. And that's a hard pill to swallow, not just for a young black mother, but I'm quite sure for all mothers. I always prayed, prayed, and I always told my kids, that's my worst nightmare, to see y'all shackled and handcuffed to other people like animals what they fail to realize. When stuff happens and you do stuff in the court system, you're not just talking him. You're talking me as a mother, as a parent, because at the end of the day, I'm the only person he have. So when you arrest him, that's funds I really can't afford. I had to pay bail money. I had to pay fines and fees. He had to do hundreds of hours of community service. And all his first-time offense. He lost a couple of jobs due to this, and it wasn't his fault. And that play a toll, and it don't just pay a toll on him. It pays a toll on me for the simple fact I get one income a month, and we work together as a team. When you're dead, yeah, it's going to go away quickly. Very quick. You throw a picture on you on the internet, hashtag rest in peace, that's a wrap. When you survive, it's, people don't really care about that. They don't really worry about somebody who survived the situation. They don't check on you. If I can see you and you're walking up the street, you're okay to me. But they don't think about the mental impact that it has. I deal with mental trauma. Nothing physical is wrong with me. I've been stressed due to this. I didn't suffer with depression due to this. You know, my anxiety level then went to the roof. I had to go be counseling for my own self. Due to this one incident, 
because y'all refuse to admit y'all made a mistake. From a legal perspective, I thought we had a pretty good case that we could argue that they had no probable cause to stop him. If you have reasonable suspicion to believe someone has committed, is committing, or will commit a crime, you can stop them and kind of investigate more. We weren't arguing that the cops were necessarily lying or anything like that, or that Hakeem didn't have a gun on him. I mean, we, the, the facts weren't in dispute. It was whether they had a reason to stop him in the first place. And unfortunately, we lost that argument. Who's labeled a victim and who's labeled a defendant? I mean, his story and many other stories is just the lines are very blurred, I think. It's rarely clear cut. I just think the majority of our clients who have been labeled criminals from the moment of their arrest, whether or not they've been convicted or not, they always have reasons for why they're in the situation they're in. And often they have been victimized themselves. And it just happens that in this certain circumstance, when we meet them, they're the criminal. And if things had turned out a little differently, they might not have been. He was carrying this gun because he was brutally assaulted. And I wish I could have won for him. After that happened, they took his gun. He wouldn't go out. He wouldn't go outside. He wouldn't go nowhere. Now, I don't regret him getting a gun. And I'm going to be honest, when all this over, I expect him to go get another one because he's not just protecting himself, he's protecting me, he's protecting the household, he's the man of the house. He's protecting his nieces and his nephews. And it's dangerous, but like he's gonna make sure he have his paperwork as he did before, and he's gonna have a consent to carry it like he should have had. I go to church every Wednesday and Sunday. I pray constantly. I walk the house with sage. Just an ongoing prayer battle. I wish I could close my eyes and just hit my heels three times and everything be over, clear, and we can just start over again. But I know that's, that's just a dream and it's gonna constantly go on. It's a hard, it's very hard. I don't think people really understand how hard it is trying to keep your composure. That's a long-term scar. The New Orleans Police Department never caught the people who assaulted Hakeem. Hakeem was never charged in the shooting that police say gave them cause to stop him, frisk him, and charge him for carrying a concealed weapon. After Hakeem completed 20 mandated anger management counseling sessions and 50 hours of community service for this gun conviction, his judge closed the case. A year later, when Hakeem tried to get his gun back, he was denied. Because Hakeem now has a criminal record, he's had trouble finding work. But before the pandemic, Hakeem did find an employer willing to take a chance on him. He was working retail in a clothing store. 
A huge thanks to Unprisoned editor Katie Rechtal, whose reporting on Hakeem Carter made this story possible. Vicki Merrick also edits the show. Special thanks to Johanna Zorn. All the music in this episode, including our theme music, is by Greg Schatz. Thanks to the Robert Rauschenberg Foundation for supporting season two of Unprisoned. Learn more about the show at unprisoned.org or wwno.org, where you can see Merle Cooper's beautiful illustration for this episode. If you haven't already, subscribe to the Unprisoned podcast. And please, write us a review. It helps other people find the show. I'm Eve Abrams. This is Unprisoned. Unprisoned.